1998, I founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. I did it because I had a few talented friends who needed a place to take their art to the next level. And because I knew there had to be more voices out there waiting to be heard. And because I wanted to go to an open mic where at least two out of three poems didn't suck. My name is Tracy Smith, and this is the KZU Slamcast. This is Slam Later, like, the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one limited moment that never crossed into the I am the Smith. I am the poet. I am the Industrial Revolution. No longer bright as fireflies. This week's Slamcast was recorded on March 6th of 2001, and it's pretty fucking special. During this time, the Keizu Slam was growing, but we weren't sure how big it was going to get yet. Now, it turns out in the early 2000s, in a town the size of Kalamazoo, two slams a month was perfect for maintaining the size of the audience and the number of uh, cats who were fucking up your recording and poets who participated, but we hadn't learned that lesson yet. So we were still trying to do a show every single week, and we were experimenting with different formats, different themes for the show, and different hosts. And this show was one of the few times we tried a cover slam, where poets would sign up to read someone else's poems. So we had a great big stack of poems for people to choose from before the show, and for whatever reason, that maybe there was a conspiracy, I don't know, like four out of six of the poets chose Todd Bannon. And in addition, and I can't remember whose idea this was, maybe it was mine, probably not, uh, there's kind of a Mad Lib element to this show uh, where contestants got an extra half point, I think, uh, if they could insert the word marmalade into their cover poem. So this is the Todd Bannon Marmalade Cover Slam with special feature poet Christopher Bulmer, a.k.a. Chris Trudell. Enjoy. called at John W. Jones's. The city has a comfort, kind of like the country, anonymity at 6 a.m. after a long, languid night when nobody cares if you're looking good or driving too fast as long as your lights are still on. And they'll never see the band or the whiskey that kicked your ass the night before, the keg that just kept flowing, or that drunk that just kept going, or the sharp curves and the yellow line, or the sharper clear curves and that deadly blonde. They'll never see the streaks of red that hold open weary eyes. The dawn has come and morning slaps his cold palm against my dewy face in the cemetery where it all began in the same state of mind that made it happen. I remember your face set against the coarse concrete tombstone, pale but distinguished, plain and contorted. I remember the soggy grass and the moans. Oh, the moans and the end came quickly and oh, how it ended with the sound of scissors snapping strings and cardboard boxes sliding clothes. I met a crazy goth kid named Sean in the cemetery this Saturday morning. He told me that Upjohn and Lovell and Gibson are all buried here beneath the damp green soil and it changed my impression of the stone and the sentiment, the grass that holds them down 
down and keeps me up in the trees that wear away in places leaving brown on top of moldy green where severed pine branches line the roadway and fear lingers overhead. Do you remember how we shed our skins and melted over cold wet sod? Do you remember how we lost ourselves and suffered from that immortal pleasure? The hazy sky has changed from hazy orange to hazy blue and the weeds have sprouted branches and the pesticides have failed and I can feel up John. I can feel Lovell. I can feel Gibson turning in his grave discontented but enthralled wishing he was part of it but what but death can satisfy a goth kid in a graveyard where giant spheres and phallic symbols make the giant spheres and phallic symbols make the commoners and huge concrete slabs are left for those who made their own mark but the one I remember the one I know best is John W. Jones and may he never rest. Okay. Call this Rite of Passage. Paperboy, Waterboy, Bellboy, Batboy, Stockboy, Ballboy, Busboy, Alterboy, Gunman. warning on the back of the legal, safe, socially acceptable diet aid that my daughter was using said the misuse of this product can cause heart attack, coma, and death. But that isn't exactly true. What really happens is that it causes heart attack, death, the body is shocked back into life, hopefully, before anoxic brain damage sets in. Then coma comes into play. Unfortunately for Ginger, it took them over 20 minutes to reestablish a heartbeat. The resulting brain damage caused her to be in a coma for over two weeks. By the time she came out of that coma, her short-term memory was decimated. She's unable to control her bodily functions. Subsequently, she is trapped in a wheelchair permanently. Her legs bear the scars of many her legs bear the scars of many surgeries from the attempts to relieve the spasticity in her legs. bright brown eyes. Bright brown eyes with soft brown hair now sits slack in her wheelchair. Her plans for the future now destroyed. Her memory turned into a void. All for the sake of being thin, body turned to bones and skin. Madison Avenue takes its toll with no love of Jesus in its soul. Buy this pill and you lose weight. You can't be fat for that big date. You know your life will be a mess if a single bulge shows in that dress. It isn't as dangerous as it sounds, using drugs to drop a couple of pounds. Don't worry about things like means and ends. Being thin makes you lots of friends. Bright Brown Eyes has friends, you see, like Judy, 
in cardiology, and an EMT whose nickname is Gator befriending her with a defibrillator. And let's not forget good old Bobby and Zach who fly helicopters for medevac. And then there's her surgeon, Dr. Brendan, who improved her life by cutting her tendons. Strangely enough, the friends you don't find are the ones that she knew when she still had a mind. Apparently, wheelchairs aren't their bag. And the sight of her bed sores makes them gag. Why can't they rejoice in her victory? She went from 119 down to 73. After all, it can't be as bad as it sounds. After all, she did drop off 46 pounds. Madison Avenue still wears its disguise. It doesn't give a damn about bright brown eyes. It just thinks of its profits and its bottom line costs. To them, bright brown eyes was a reasonable loss. But to a brown-haired mom and a brown-eyed dad, those bright brown eyes were all that they had. She sits in her chair, trying to remember her name. Yesterday and tomorrow, to her, the same. Please heed the warnings of a family trapped in an endless minefield of anguish. Do not tread this path. If someone in your family, someone you know and love, has an eating disorder, or you don't know what the telltale signs are for an eating disorder, please contact your me local mental health professionals for some guidance. She said, home. Sometimes when her mind comes out of the storm, there's only three words that she's able to form. Two garbled sounds that mean mom and dad. In a well-spoken word, in a tone oh so sad, she says home. Yes, it's home. There's a look of confusion deep in her eyes when we tell her the wherefores and the therefores and the whys that's replaced by a sadness. And maybe a tear when again there's a word that she's not to hear. That word's home. Yes, it's home. And just as I'm leaving the visitor's floor, I look back at my daughter and I see once more her lips forming the word and that look in her eye. And I step around the corner and I break down and cry. She said, home. She wants home. Daddy, home. Two poems for Ginger. I'm Andrew Bird. Thank you. Keep it going for Andrew. Come on. Can you do something a little silly? Yeah. All right. Is that no, it's not. This is dedicated to uh, GW. It's called I Love America. America, I love you. If I wasn't married already, I'd ask you out on a date. Maybe we'd go out for dinner to a real American chain restaurant like TGI Fridays or Chili's or Houlihan's, and then we'd go catch a movie. You know, there's a really good Mel Gibson flick out. It's all about you, and it has this really cool special effects like musket balls and super slow-mo. Then afterwards, we could watch a sunset on sea to shining sea, and I'd put my hand on your knee, and if you didn't stop me, I'd slide it up your American thighs that that band wrote about and you would giggle nervously. 
Finally, when it was time to take you home, 10 minutes after curfew, I tried to sneak a kiss, but your stuffy old dad, England, would turn on the porch lights and you'd disappear behind your door while I stood standing with a painful erection. Oh, I have a hard-on for you, America. But I am married, America. I have a wife at home, and she's waiting for me right now wearing red and white, blue, red, white, and blue bra and panty set. And she is pretty patriotic, but she's still upset about that incident at the fireworks last year. She holds grudges, baby. She would smell you on my breath. She'd notice your amber waves of grain stuck in my zipper. So <laughs> what can I do, America? My heart aches for you. I want to have babies with you. They would be smart. They would be beautiful. They would be Irish-American. I love you, America, but for now... I can only have you in my dreams. Todd bless America. All right. Some of you will notice laid before you on the table what is called a cover slam survey. As you're watching the poets this evening, look over this thing and tell me what's the best and what's the worst. is cheap and good advice is hard to find been all around up and down land to land from town to town if there's any truth or meaning that I have found it's put that groove deep into the ground Can't 
Wish I could do Mac to knife, huh? Yeah. Uh, this first this first piece I got two to read here. The first one's called Deja Vu. I want to go to the place where all the choices not taken are stored, the paths not walked or kept. I belong in this other world with these discards where I can be strong. I want to know once and for all the things that might have been, who was waiting just around the corner, who wanted to be my friend, or but for a careless phrase or unfortunate circumstance, might have been my companion. I want to rummage through this boneyard of choices not taken, of identities mistaken in old Waterloo's, of days spent sleeping in late and dreams too quickly forgotten once awake, of kind words unspoken laying around like old bus tokens, unused, out of date. I will sift through the dry white ashes of checks that can't be cashed and money lost and found in this place where the moon is always new, dark but still in bloom, reflecting only time, creating a kind of deja vu. I want to visit my palace of regrets built with broken promises, unpaid debts. I want to see the other me if he still lives there. We could stay up all night and talk back and forth like excited children waiting for the morning to finally arrive, for its glow to light up this slate-colored sky. We'd be patient, though, secretly knowing that our days must always come slow, as the dawn enters slowly, treading softly on bruised foot soles. Thank you. Uh, this other poem is uh, called The Artist at Work. I always wonder what it'd be like to be like inside a painting or a space that an artist had created. So that's kind of where this poem came from. Her thoughts of daylight bleed through evening, dusk, and morning as paint-colored oils pour into each earthly leaf and lie, then spill out over the horizon, filling the sleepy sky and all the vessels of the stars and moon with long, silken streams of cream and blue. The artist's brush soars along, caressing tiny puffs of clouds, then lingering over shifting tributaries of deep blue eddies of sunlit wind. Suddenly the brush pushes hard and leans into the paint like a keel, spreading the last broad wakes of robin's egg blue and frosted teal. A new brush is chosen. Like an otter's tail, the tip playfully glides along, floating across windstrap streaks of cadmium white covering the last blemishes of dry canvas with shiny white dabs of honey-colored sky. An armada of golden cloud chips sails toward us from beyond the horizon. They are free in this new place without our flawed expectations of composition or form. There are no rules governing space and time. Even gravity is free to sail to release its grip and go skinny dipping in the sky. Thank you. Y'all killing me with the music, man. I'm not the type of person you'd expect me to be because your mind can't realize what your eyes can't see. I walk alone, mind racing, but my eyes look dead as people stare, contemplating what's inside of my head, and I'm soft-spoken. Swear I ever speak to my dad. My only conversation partners are repenting the pad. Now that's sad, but that's the only way to let it all out. The rage, the frustration, and all the self-doubt. I never said the way I lead my life was nice. And the more the tension builds, then that's just the more right. I often keep my true emotions hidden from my peers. And it's been times when the stress 
message nearly moved me to tears. I sit back, close my eyes, and try to think. It's difficult to swim when they want to make it sink. It's hard for me to say unless I put it in the rhyme. Got people staring at me like I'm about to do a crime. That's why I window watch off high buildings by myself. It's rare I'm ever noticed because I move low stealth. <laughs> and though this really sounds depressing, my life has its perks. This is just a rough sketch of how my mind works. All right, the bartender asked me to do this poem <laughs> because it's called the alcohol poem, and I guess she wants y'all to get drunk, so y'all go ahead and buy some more beer. Uh, I, would, I just want to say something, though. There's nothing more frustrating than being a liquor drinker in a spot that only serves beer. That's really frustrating. <laughs> I will next time. That's why I buy cargo pants. <laughs> Cause it's that man who's laid back but still keeps it wild. A drifter as a man, outcasted as a child. Now mentally I never let it bother me much because instead of being blessed, well a nigga was touched in the dome. Leave me alone, I gotta get my thoughts straight. I tried to hold it down but I can't concentrate. Reoccurring nightmares, screams in the dark. Did I bring this on myself or was I fucked from the start? My head stuck in the clouds, tears falling to earth cause I've been trapped in this hell since birth. Now worse comes to worse, it makes a nigga have to wonder why. A lifetime I smile cause really I wanna cry. Damn, so confused, so at times I gotta ask Should I cancel my future just to escape from my past? <laughs> Whoever said that this life I lead was simple If it was, I wouldn't do 85 The residentials wouldn't have to deal with crooked thoughts all the time Wouldn't have to struggle just to find peace of mind And so a sad chapter must come to a close Because the alcohol just spilled all in my clothes Damn! <laughs> All right, one more and I'm out of here. They're asking for encores and stuff, but I don't do that normally unless I'm drunk, so. <sighs> it's been a long, a long time coming. Though it seems as though I've stayed away too long. It's been a long, a long time coming yet still i sing the same sad song Cause standing alone, I was shown my situation. The star I'm chasing seems out of reach, but it's that of Nathan, fly or fall. In a stranger's eyes, you think I had it all, but you don't know my inner war stories. I hear the call on my past, not far behind. I've fallen from grace. I can't run nowhere to hide like I'm suspended in space, deep in this mental prison. I've tried to loosen the bars. I know now why fallen angels tend to envy the stars. Pipe dreams of being something greater tortures the soul. And if all the world's a stage, then what the fuck is my role? Nobody knows. And that's why I'm depressed, it seems. In this life, all I'll ever really have is my dreams, they're all I've got to lose. All else is falling away, but at times even my dreams seem so far in the way. I swear there's nothing left. I feel my back to the wall. I've come too far to turn back, but up ahead I swear there's nothing at all. Chasing the dream that doesn't want to be caught. And with every failed attempt, another part of me's lost. Sometimes I'll stare up at the sky and hate what I see when all the stars in my dreams are there laughing at me. Peace, y'all. Good evening. My name is Chris Trudell. Tonight's talk on the ever-changing economic trends in the Midwestern market region will be broken into three parts. In the first, we will follow recent global economic indicators in an attempt to anticipate coming fiscal, the coming fiscal term. 
We will move to a demographic analysis drawn of a six-month survey taken by the Harvard University Industrial Consortium aimed at gathering information on monetary surplus flow for middle-income families throughout the Midwest and the Northern region. And third, we will ask you at what point will you get completely sick of me talking about this and have me go on with the rest of my poetry? I'll talk to you later. <laughs> All right. There are a few things that you guys do know, and there's a few things that you guys don't know, and hopefully you'll know more by the end of this, and that's what this thing's for. And so I'll start with a moment. I can feel that moment in my hand as if it were squeezing a piece of jagged glass. It was worse than the day Santa Claus was no longer real, worse than the day I knew my brother wouldn't be normal. Standing at the edge of the stream, one minute away from the perfect swim, I found a hatchling laying on the dark rock, silver and still like a folded spoon. Everything must die, my father said, digging out a bit of soil to bury the bird. And as I looked up at him, his face was much older than I had ever seen it before. And there are people that we will come in contact with and we will know and we will be related to that are very important to us and sometimes we have to capture those people. And I only went fishing with my grandfather once. We planned to go every year like whispers that never really make their way into words, sitting in his well-worn easy chair watching baseball. He would map out the lake like a general going to war. He would explain every motion from rowing the boat to casting the line, the commander in charge of a singular determined troop. He had a dusty, gray, bust, twice-busted box of lures he would take from the closet, each bait taking the shape of alien paraphernalia. And he would reach into each one, and there was an explanation for each. This is a hula popper. It makes a lot of noise under there, and it really pisses them off. And he would hum and chuckle for a moment, thinking it was the funniest thing in the world. Even when he got sick, we didn't postpone our plans. Thirty years of hard drinking and factory fumes dimmed the halogen glare and that flared up inside of him, but it couldn't sink the fisherman. I found a creased old cardboard box of trivial pursuit cards in the closet next to the lures. In the back bedroom, I cut them into unfortunate little fish and glued magnets near their mouths. With a redwood cane and kite string, I formed a fishing pole. Blue crayon and construction paper made a makeshift lake on the floor. That day, we fished. We caught every monstrous creature in that lake and threw them back to be caught again. We bantered like old buddies and compared our catches with the competitive hunger of boxers. And I ended up pulling more fish than him. And he gave me that old gray busted tackle box for besting him. That was the last chance we had to catch line and lead the catch the last lake we would ever navigate together, grandfather and grandson gently rocking the boat of time. My brother is here right now. He's sitting right back there. And uh, Matthew is a ball of light. He is a complete and total... Um, inspiration to me. 
And this is Matthew. Your brother is retarded, and everybody knows it. Their weasel-cheeked faces seemed to come to a point every time I'd watch them speak, shooting insults into me like poison-tipped bullets aimed at leaving me broken. My brother wasn't born normal. His architecture insufficient to sustain the taxation weighed on the human brain. He entered elementary school when I was in fourth grade, and as soon as they knew he was a Trudel as well, I became a target taking daily dishes of, hey, look, it's the stupid kid's brother, and hey, shouldn't you get a handicap sticker for him? I'd walk the hallways haunted by the idea that somewhere someone was taunting him and kept to myself to avoid insult, going home wishing he were normal. That was my mistake. Let me tell you a little bit about my brother. No, his brain does not flex at the fingers with the precision to pinch bits of real and write them into story. His memory doesn't make a steady connection of number sequence and dynamic tasks. His vocabulary cannot pull words from the sky and weave them into a golden fleece of language. He does not see the world as rows and columns or grids and maps. He is not doomed by our incessant need to be organized. When Matthew's brain moves, it bends at the elbow sweeps every bit of junk off the table of knowing and leaves you peaceful in his presence. His memory is like a frothy cauldron with constant bits of magic floating to the surface. Nothing is lost. He remembers everything he has ever seen and pulls it from that steamy pot only when he thinks it's necessary. His words will bring you into a glittering world of favorite movies, songs from soundtracks, and toys to be pondered with an uncluttered curiosity. He tells me, to keep close to the things I love every time he gets misty-eyed telling me about his Terminator movies. In his world, there are no late-waking frustrations. He has no need for complexity. Where he comes from, people are judged by their being, not by these tragic skin sacks that keep us so busy, and Matthew spins he stands in the middle of the room and twirls himself for hours, laughing and screaming in his own private orbit of joy, dancing to the pure rhythm of life that pulses behind his ears. Nothing that he does is normal. And if I had the chance, I'd go back in time to my elementary school and I'd have a few things to say. Normal is looking at the clock every 15 minutes it's liking something because someone else does, worrying for the sake of worrying, denying joy for no good reason. When Matthew can see past stars, you will walk with blinders. When Matthew can feel the wave coming, you will be left to drown. My brother may be retarded, but you, my friend, are normal, and everybody knows it. That was for Matthew. This is the experiment. I can't remember unwrapping it. It was probably covered in a festive foil paper with holly wreaths and drummer boys, all red and green with a bow around it. It would have been the biggest box I got that year, so I probably tore it open with fury and abandon. 
Dr. Monroe's junior chemistry set stayed sealed for the time it took me to run through the rest of the presents and then was promptly examined by the little scientist whose grandmother just made his Christmas. It was better than the one I had seen on TV. It boasted 200 individual experiments, a fountain of formulas, and the most amazing recipe for invisible ink that you had never seen. For a fourth grader waiting to take on the world of discovery, it was truly a thing of beauty. The warnings seemed trivial at the time. Keep out of the hands of small children. Always work with adult supervision. And don't forget to wear your safety goggles. Now that I think about it, I would have known better if I had read the list that said this box contains two miniature clear plastic beakers, a petri dish for collecting cultures, four thin blue test tubes and a handful of rubber stoppers, various mixing sticks, a pair of eye goggles, and an in-depth instruction book written by Dr. Monroe himself, and then the prize. A collection of white plastic bottles with black lettering scrolled with fancy words and alien symbols, basic solutions and diluted acids with their ominous warnings of poison providing the slimmest amount of security. And that's probably where I stopped reading, dead set on beginning my scientific discoveries in my superior experiments. I didn't read the promise of hours of fun, the witty warning on the back of the box that your kids might just learn something. And I definitely did not see what was about to happen there in front of me as I started unfolding my package of magic. I swear, somewhere, in between the color letters, there was thin, fine print with the warnings we just don't want to believe. It would read, Warning. In the next couple of months, this box will be left to collect dust. Until that day you come home with the echoes of the school children rumbling through your brain, you will have taken on too much. Your child's mind will be weighed down like a semi-truck full of iron ore heading down a highway. You won't know where to go, and then you will see this chemistry set. The skull and crossbone bottles will talk to you, telling you this is the only way ending the first real pain that you have ever felt. You will hide away the worst of the chemicals, knowing they are your only hope, but hoping you will never have to use them. You will slip and give your secret to your mother, and she will try to lighten the load, canceling your extra classes and taking you to the therapist who will lie, who you will to lie to, even though you know you shouldn't. They will say that you are okay, and you will go home, and the next day, you will perform your final experiment. The liquids will taste like tinfoil, charcoal, gasoline. They will burn and fizzle on their way down. You will think of Three Musketeers, basketball games, and you will lay back thinking about how much you will miss your brother. My Aunt Judy passed away not long ago, and she was that relative that everybody has that is just is the embodiment of magic and, and wonder and all of these things that are just incredible about a person. And she was, she was taken from, from me and my family and it, uh, it dealt me a blow that I can't comprehend and I, I can't get down into a, a piece of poem. But I, I can 
crack the surface. Sometimes the night whispers to us of loved ones, a face from a passing car or a scent from a store window. This time, it's walking by a bar, the bustle and rub of people, background honky-tonk blues bellowing from a jukebox, and the star-spun dark spills out the name Judy. They tell me that she left home at 13. She told, they told me she had an attitude from the day she was born, always tore into, a, in trouble, into trouble like a beast into fresh meat, curious to all the thunder of the world, and sometimes she was just plain mean. Left home at 13, seeking freedom, good fortune in the heat of Alabama. Years of bar brawls, broken bones and beer. In Savannah ran a busted up sawdust saloon, played cook, manager, bartender, bouncer, wore black eyes like makeup, constantly saying, you should have seen the other guy. <laughs> then she moved back to Michigan, moved home, lived comfortable. And in 1978, I was born. Not long after she had lost a child. And it seemed somewhere a connection was made. Some of the best snippets of my childhood were spent with her telling stories and playing cards. She would give me bits of wisdom, simple magic, and dusty spells. Judy always knew what I was thinking. She'd always ask me whether or not I was eating. You're just getting too damn skinny. But the busier I got, the less I saw her. Stopping by briefly to chit-chat over cigarettes and old movies, but rarely to stay more than an hour. And one, one day, I come home to a scribbled message on my refrigerator saying I have to come over. There is something we have to talk about. I go over expecting a lecture about something that I had done that she had seen in a dream the night before. But instead, I walked in to see her in tears, fear folding her face as she took me in her arms and told me she had lung cancer. A prickling pain fingering its way up my spine, and no, you don't. The only thing I could say over and over like the sunshine denying the darkness, and for hours we cried together. It was a ten-penny song played by a fool when she told me she could beat that black dance tangoing inside of her, and I watched close as the dull gray pain replaced chair the cherry flush of her face. Five months of chemotherapy left her wreck, wrecked nearly 300 pounds of hollow human suffering, and I watched her smile die long before the rest of her. After that, she couldn't recognize the rest of the family, but every time I visited, she knew I was there. Then one day they wheeled that bed away, and they wheeled a part of me away with it. But those are not the things that I will remember. My children will someday know her by portraits brushed in stories. Ten years, Kmart shopping, wanderings, Hank Williams and Janet, Johnny Cash and the King played at Rattlebone volumes behind her screaming, Eat, boy, eat, before there's nothing left of you. All the time she swore she was part Indian, her bedroom covered with a hundred junk market prints to prove it, that self-proclaimed ability to stare clean into the future, seeing mine and my brother's births, grandfather's death, and finally her own, the dates emblazoned across the scrollwork of her open sky mind. These are the things when I think of her. But I still have not been able to visit her grave. Somewhere inside of me believing she is still breathing, driving her black minivan somewhere in Alabama with a cigarette in one hand and a dream catcher in the other. And someday I will see her. I will hug her until my arms fall off and then step back and say, See, Aunt Judy, I'm not as skinny as I used to be.
Sometimes there are hard times. Sometimes they don't get any better. And sometimes they're absolutely worse. You will forget the click, the bang, the thunderous force pummeling your fingers against the wall behind the butt of the gun. You won't remember the gunmetal glimmer with its gaping void waiting for you. There will be nothing left of the liquid minutes just before the explosion that would have seeped out of your brain, a thick crimson parade marking the disaster there on the floor. And nothing of the hour after. Paralyzed in the corner under the realization of the rebirth given by the flinch of a wrist, all that will remain is the smell. Burning iron nitrate searing the fragile nerves of the nose, the hot blast tanning the skin in an instant, a fast bath of powder washing over the ear, leaving the thin impression of burning flesh lingering in the lungs. A smell so sweet it will force tears in your eyes every time you revisit its industrial pungency. It is the smell of life the second after you thought it was over. And then there are those poems that mark a spot in time, either because you read it at that time or that poem caused that moment to happen. Um, it's the cover slam night, and I offer this as my cover. And I actually saw Alice Walker read this poem and uh, long after I had originally come upon it. But this, this said everything at the time that I read it. Expect nothing. Live frugally on surprise. Become a stranger to need of pity, or, if compassion be freely given out, take only enough. Stop short of the urge to plead, then purge away the need. Wish for nothing larger than your own small heart, or greater than a star. Tame, wild disappointment with caress, unmoved and cold. Make of it a parka for your soul. Discover the reason why so tiny human giant exists at all. So scared, unwise, but expect nothing. Live frugally on surprise. We're inundated with images. Uh, they are constantly fed to us by TV, radio, whatever, whatnot, and we're constantly throwing things on our walls to show us, you know, the better life or the, the whatever. Famous men and women, well-dressed and perfect, wearing cool expressions, have always surrounded me, frozen over the four posts of my bed. They are musicians, writers, the occasional painted lady draped onto a canvas and printed on white glossy paper to be hung in the rec rooms of hundreds of homes. I always wanted to be a poster, shining in your dining room, illuminated by picture lights, smiling at you while you eat your dinner. I wanted to have my picture laid out flat, attached to the insides of young girls' doorways to be dreamt about after dark. I always wa wanted my name in bold golden letters with a nickname underneath like The Enforcer. 
The face it would bear would be nothing like mine. It would be chiseled like carved wood with a tiny scar perfectly placed just like a movie star's. I'd wear leather real well and bare skin even better. You would buy them by the dozen to give them as gifts to your friends and relatives who would all congregate around my image asking him, asking, how does he do it? Or is he dreamy or what? Or what do you think he's thinking, do you think? And hey... When's the next poster coming out? But these days, a poster of me would be missing the shiny print. No store-bought pose would grace the page encased in expensive garments. No one would stand in front of it for hours on end contemplating its glorious form or quivering under its intensity. I probably wouldn't be in it at all. It would be a picture of a deep blue sky thumbnail moon hovering over the horizon with an, one cloud shaped like a rhinoceros and maybe a feather from a bird who doesn't care which way it flies. Castle in Battle Creek and it's been one of the most incredible amazing experiences in my life and every once in a while I come in contact with someone a, either a student or a teacher who who absolutely makes this incredible impression on me and there's one in particular and his name's Jerome there is a subtle buzz that rises from a full classroom. It's a kinetic teeming that streams between students, flows full force between their ears, eyes, and little minds, blazing a straight path from the hands of the teacher. Mostly, we teach what is given. The answers laid out in the backs of books, study guides, and student handouts, but sometimes we must teach only from what we know, and I learned that from 3'11", 5th grade Jerome. He sat in the back of my class with the extreme distance of an old world statue, looking lost right there where he was supposed to be. And every time I taught his art class, I was shown how cruel kids can be. They called him imp, elf, midget, monkey, gnome, and a hundred other expressions to show him how tiny he was until one day he looked up at me and said in these exact words, it must be golden to be tall. Explaining that being small must be all the things wrong and the world rolled into one. And for five minutes, I watched that little man cry, thinking of myself at that age, hovering over everyone. My teachers, they'd call on me every time they couldn't reach something. And my classmates, they called me beanpole, giraffe, jolly green giant, and freak, walking home from fifth grade every day, just hoping I wouldn't grow anymore. And as I looked down at Jerome's tear-trembling, shuddered shape, I looked at his notebook, open to the picture of a dragon devouring a little boy in the back of a classroom. And I remember that drawing. The dragon was a tiger. The boy was much, much taller, but the picture was exactly the same. But all I could tell Jerome that day is that it would be okay. But that's not what I was supposed to say. What I should have told him is that we must be careful when listening to what others have to say. Do not be discouraged. The truth is we are all screaming in opposite directions. We are all perfect to perfection. We grow and rage and move and change and sometimes we wind up a little bit strange, but we are all golden and our strengths should not be broken by those who would remind you that they are flawed too by insulting the way that you are made. And Jerome, remember, you are only as tall as the top of your head. Next time, measure the height of your spirit instead.
that my life is incredible. Um, every, not like incredible, like, oh, I'm, you know, whatever, but I literally wake up every morning enjoying this life, and that's something that I never, ever thought would happen. And because of that, it's an incredible, it's an incredible world. Um, <laughs> yeah, every morning I wake up feeling incredible. And on every, any given morning, I wake up to the telephone singing like a lake at the crest of a wave. And that sound bounds outward and startles a bird resting at the window. And that bird is red like morning. It's tender, blood-colored, and burning. And it takes off and flies southbound on the concrete river seeking food and nest fodder. And its wingtips brush the wind. And soon it is watching water dripping from a park bench being soaked by a sprinkler. And the sprinkler was turned on by a man as rickety as the walking stick that's resting at his side. It was a gift from his grandfather, carved with endless notches, and before the year is over, he will have given it to his son, who ten miles away is waiting for his daughter. She is playing a piano in a room full of gaping windows. She is thinking about Picasso, but all she can see are the keys. And outside, there is a garden. And the roses drink the music next to a woman swaying graceful like a feather trapped inside the wind. And she picks only the tomatoes and she puts them in a basket. And the basket, it's almost full. It was a present from her husband who's driving to the store to buy some pipe tobacco. He's fumbling with the radio as he's tapping on the brakes. And behind him, there's a mailman who's worked for 30 years, has never seen the ocean and will always pray for change. And his girlfriend is waiting tables at some diner on some corner where she knows her customers' names. And soon her shift will be over so she can go home and fill the bathtub full of bubbling water and forget the morning strain. And walking home, she walks from street to street, passing all the houses but thinking only of her own. And as she looks up at the one she's passing, there is a phone ringing beyond the windows, and the person who is calling is resting from her work and she is calling someone who loves her the way the desert loves the rain. And as I pick up that receiver, hear her voice and speak softly to her, I know the miracle of the morning on any given day. Most of the time, there aren't very many answers. There aren't very many questions for that matter. There's usually not a real clear way to go. But for the last poem, I'll give you the map. When you finally find the map, it will remind you of an ancient parchment cracked and battered with long dead languages and pilgrim symbols last used in the day before Christ came. It will not have a thin, pin-tipped arrow pointing north to help you navigate. Direction will be left to dead reckoning, determination, and the kind of luck you don't find behind rainbows. Its rivers and roads will move as if to elude you every time you look at it. It will leave you speechless as you watch the road in front of you unwind, every minute weaving in and out of sight like a hawk evading the bird watcher's binoculars. The map will not be precise like an atlas with a highlighted highway taking you straight to your destination. Its exits and on-ramps will not be obvious or well-numbered. Rarely 
Will you be able to shape the layout? Your geography changes at nature's pace. In this way, you are less like an earthquake and more like the wind. The map cannot tell you anything you don't already know. Within its folds are only the hopes for the treasure found in that blue sun-striped river full of thick fish you've always dreamed of, that shining city of endless minutes, and for some, simply the road home. It can only get you to that jagged pebble path just outside that door. Unlit and waiting like a snowstorm or a sunny day. You will have to brave the path naked, never sure of your footing. You will have to find the road tar-marked and meandering, then fight your way down your own private highway, speeding toward the shimmer of solid rock mountains that always hide just beyond the horizon. Thank you. It's called the sweater vest. <laughs> Don't ask me how I got stuck with this poem. I like to lay back and watch people interacting. I like to observe men and women trying to get laid without seeming to want to get laid. I like to watch. There were two men and three women, a redhead with a wet dress, like the tall guy with the blue shirt. The married woman was just having fun teasing a threesome fantasy. They danced close. They danced with hands and lips and torsos. They danced like lovers, the three of them. The last girl, the skinny blonde, she liked a guy in a sweater vest. I was dumbfounded. I was stunned. I could not believe my eyes. The pretty, skinny blonde liked the guy in the sweater vest. She sat on his lap and let him stroke her long, thick hair. She liked the sweater vest. But you see, there was a time when I was out there looking, the sweater vest would guarantee to keep the girls away. The sweater vest was a babe repellent. No man looking would dare wear the sweater vest to a bar. No man. I was 12 and I wore the sweater vest my mom gave me to go to school. I came home with swollen eyes and bloody lip. I learned at the end of a fist, the sweater vest was everything a boy was not supposed to be. It was clean, I, it was clean and, I, and went to church Learned pinch, earned pinched cheeks from ants proclaiming cuteness. The sweater vest was the opposite of ripped jeans, t-shirts, and baseball caps. I learned at the end of a fist, and I vowed never to wear the sweater vest again. This man never learned about the sweater vest. <laughs> this man was wearing the sweater vest, and he was two smooth lines and three soft touches away from taking this girl home with him, I wanted to kick his ass. <laughs> he had to learn what I had learned. The sweater vest must go. There is a time just before closing, just before the lights come on, just before the band plays their final cover, there is a time when a man will take a woman home with him 
or stay to fight the other men. That'd be me. The sweater vest. <laughs> the sweater vest was walking out the door with the woman on his arm. Stop! I screamed. <laughs> Stop! I need to know. The sweater vest stopped, and the woman looked at me with the same blue eyes that a moment ago were removing the sweater vest from this man. What, she asked, in the, <laughs> what, she asked in the same voice she used to whisper in the sweater vest's ear. I, I, I need to know <laughs> if you like the sweater vest. Do you like this man for the sweater vest? Or despite the sweater vest? Are you turned on? Are you turned on by the sweater vest? Seriously, darling, I need to know. She looked at me again with those same blue eyes that would shortly be watching the sweater vest fall to the floor. She looked at me and laughed. The sweater vest has nothing to do with it. All right, what'd you think of Aaron? Reading Todd's sweater vest poem. Sorry, but there ain't no way in hell marmalade fits into this one. Unless I rub it all over. I think I'll... By Dan Stevens. I think I'll smoke another cigarette and lie to myself again and slip into unconsciousness where I can be alone. I think I'll tell another fairy tale and sink the very ship I sail alone inside a womb within a woman made of stone. I think I'll fake another tempting thought and learn another truth I've taught and deal with all the anger that I said I'd never feel. I think I'll piss another dime away and bury everything I say beneath a settled fantasy. I know it isn't real. I think I'll tear away a memory, forget what Mama said to me. I know I'll never see the world through any other eyes. I think I'll listen to a solemn voice and make another tainted choice and hear a simple story that I know to be a lie. I think I'll sound another silent scream and hope you see just what I mean. You take my words so seriously. You take my words so certainly. You're missing what I say. I think I'll find another metaphor to show you what I do it for and show you what it takes for me to live another day. I think I'll play another lonely tune and lie beneath a mystic moon and dream of something better than I know I'll ever be. I think I'll live and learn and carry on until my love is dead and gone. And then retreat to fallen castles far beyond the sea. I think I'll drink another cup of dirt and hide whatever makes me hurt in books and tattered notebook pads for everyone to read. I think I'll see myself for all I am and never run another scam. For every time I tell a lie, I sow another seed. I think I'll, by Dan Stevens. Does the prop have to be available to everybody? Yes. yes. All right, there's only a little left. <laughs> What happened to the left bank by Lonnie C. Little? 
Gotta find a sixpence so I can get my girlfriend some magic hay. Makes her feel like flying, gotta get her some today. Must find another sixpence tomorrow for some of that magic hay. Takes a little more each day, but it's hard adding it up, so I will call it a sixpence no matter what the cost. But hey, gotta have it anyway. Stole a sixpence today, so not so hard to do if you need more magic hay. I tried one with her today, messes up your head, makes the houses walk, the trees wave, and the earth move under your feet. Neat. Broke today, so I'm going to go to the left bank to borrow my sixpence. They say, this is no bank. I say, then why do you call it a bank? Makes the houses, um, I need some magic hay. We got your bank down here in the dungeon, they say. Send my girlfriend a sixpence so she can get some magic hay. No, they say, but we will send her something some quaaludes will do. Maybe some crack or smash, smack, LSD or H. What is that, heroin or hash? She got it all right. The next day I went home, got to have a sixpence for a hole. Don't need no magic hay today. Going to cry all day. The angels came to get here, so it must have been marmalade. Don't like angels anyway. She's at the bottom of that hole, so it must not have been angels that got her today. Where did she go? Take this hurt away. But hey, tomorrow will come for me, won't it? Got to find a sixpence. Going to get some more of that magic hay. I wouldn't have to share it with her no more. I'll quit someday. Not today. Keyboard, Don. Think so, huh? Closet Liberal by Todd Bannon. Let me get something perfectly straight. I am not a Republican. I know what you're thinking, but she's such a snappy dresser. She's so sensitive. Her mores and worldviews are so progressive and forward thinking. She must be a Republican. I am not, I assure you. All right, I admit it. I, I did experiment in the 80s a, a little, but I was curious, and everyone was doing it. The money, the junk bonds, the marmalade, the power ties. The whole lifestyle was very appealing. I was young and naive, but you can't hold my youthful indiscretions against me. Okay, maybe I was a re registered Republican voter once, but it wasn't my choice. It was my upbringing. I was raised in a corrupt and immoral household. Blame my family. My father was a Republican. My brother was a Republican. I come from a long line of card-carrying, limbaugh-loving, ultra-conservative Republicans. It took eight years of college and a lifetime of therapy to undo the brainwashing. I don't even vote anymore, I swear. When I came out of the political closet, I sat my parents down and told them who I really am. I was free. All those years of lying were over. My parents have since disowned me, but I'm finally true to myself. I mean, I hardly ever think about bombing abortion clinics anymore, but I confess I still have a taste for track lighting and show tunes. And sometimes I even find myself back in one of those seedy Republican bars, the ones decorated in mahogany and reeking of newsprint and leather briefcases. 
You might even see me dancing with some balding hottie in a dark blue three-piece suit. But I haven't taken anyone home with me in at least two months. I'm trying very hard to leave that life behind. He wouldn't know it by looking at me, but I am truly hardcore in my liberalism. I've burned American flags on the steps of the Kremlin. I've sailed the rainbow on the Rainbow Warrior and liberated animals from university laboratories. I've chained myself to tanks, bulldozers, and Sequoia Redwoods. Yeah! 35 political leaders have restraining orders against me. I've been banned from the states of Alabama and Georgia. My FBI file is six inches thick. And you thought I was a Republican. Don't let my haircut and glasses fool you. I am somewhere left of communist. Environmentalists praise me. Anarchists fear me. I am anything but a Republican. Sometimes I get drunk and speak my real mind and flirt with all the girls and people say, he's just drunk. Don't listen to him. He's just drunk. Ignore him. He's just drunk. I understand alcoholism. Addiction seems a reasonable response to sleepwalking. You wouldn't think that this fat face and these working class clothes would be capable of addiction. The truth is, this face you see is addicted to anything that can even bring me the tiniest pleasure. This face you see passes everything through filters, ignores the difficult, is always looking for derivatives to every equation. This face you see is mediocrity, normalcy, vanilla pudding, sponge cake. These eyes are weary of watching ABC, CNN, NBC, CBS, MTV. This tongue is tired of tasting butternut bread with marmalade. These fingers, vinyl, rayon, polyester. You know, I had to take this job so I could afford to write. I had to buy this car so that I could keep this job, and I had to keep this job so I could pay for this car. Now I don't have time to write. I know all about these hidden steel traps. I would chew my leg off if I could. We are living in echoes, Plato's cavemen watching shadows of shadows, and we think that they are real, that this is light, that this is the sun. I can barely remember using my legs to walk. I've been chained to the walls of this cave for so long I didn't even notice the shackles anymore. And these shadows of shadows seem real to me. I can barely remember the sun. I can barely remember real people. People with that skin that bleeds and fists that tear and eyes that shout and voices that strike the sky. I'm ready to come back. I'm ready. I can barely remember, but that is enough. That's enough to tear me away from these shadows, to break these chains, to bring me out from within this dark cave. I'm ready to be me again. I'm ready to be that child touching reality. If you'll take me, I'll come. Kicking and screaming and hating the light for its truth, but I'll be alive. I'll be breathing real air. I'll be seeing real sun. I'll be touching substance. 
and I'll be human again. Stay. Good boy. I am the Omnipoet. I have retroactively influenced all the poets before me. And I invented marmalade. It was me Kerouac was praying to on the Brooklyn Bridge, who drove pound insane, who tore Yeats' world apart, who revealed Albion to Blake. I was the vision Coleridge was writing about in his opium-induced trance. Coleridge was a pretty good poet for an Englishman. I sent an errand boy to save his life because my image made real by pen and paper would have destroyed everything. It was me Shakespeare was writing about, you know, the story about my romance with a 13-year-old girl. That was me. But Shakespeare had it all wrong. I never killed myself. It was me, not Zeus, who seduced all those women. And I never had to change into a bull, a swan, or a golden shower. <laughs> those were lies told to husbands. I was the one who spoke to the prophets through their dreams. I foretold the Messiah. Revelation was mine. Nothing has been written since the garden but by me. I'm not God. I'm not Satan. I'm their mouthpiece. The mouthpiece of all that has been and all that ever will be. Listen to me carefully. Another Todd poem. It's the Todd Bannon cover slam, everybody. Stage, your slam master and mine, Mr. Tracy Smith. I have no idea if I'll remember this, but uh, is Chris still here? There he is. Help me out, dude, if I fuck it up. Because when the darkness comes, I have to pour marmalade over the wounds I won while fighting the daylight for my dreams. <laughs> you forgot it already. So I can forget that I am messing in an unsettled century with the unbearable immensities of a billion minds gone mad, you see. 
I have to escalate to moonshine heights to get a better view of you. But my focus is frozen and my intensity is broken by that bent weather mysticism as the brain fades to gray. So I just consume more marmalade to fashion new horizons, but new horizons grow dim as the spirit wears thin. So how do I escape? How do I escape the haze of a broken daybreak and smear off the glaze of all that goddamn marmalade? I have to open the eye that hides behind daybreak, that screams for its own sake, that swims in my thoughts wake. It's in a pad and a pen and a bucket of ink in transcendent meditation as my mind forgets to think. <laughs> and from the notebooks of convention flies the spirit of ascension and from that sight mixes fuel to the fires of my soul in riding that rush of temptation and lust for that moment, for that moment, for that moment I am able to see your blood-soaked hearts beating and bleeding to the schisms of society and beating and beating to the rhythms of our harmony and beating and beating to the raptures of our rhyme because there's no coming down from that mankind high until you dipped into the word well and pulled out fire and desire and the blaze burns for days. And I stand at the eye of that storm known as truth like a bottle of thunder at 200 proof. And I stare into the third eye until it looks backwards and blinks blind and is reopened again to see. And I scramble for words because there are no excuses when describing the verse that compassion produces. And for that moment, for that moment, for that moment I am motion when time's standing still. And I am the cure when your conscience is ill. And I am the sandman when the whole world is sleepless. And I see a light where the darkness is deepest. through populated desolation where we mem memorialize bloodshed and realization comes with every rusted trailer screaming that this is the true America. Dilapidated shacks and semis carrying cows straight to our dinner plates killed just for you. And I don't know what bothers me more, that most Indians don't app running water or that Californians do. And if you're going to San Francisco, eat sushi and leave. Don't talk to the locals. Their lives read like subtitles on a Woody Allen film. They're trying to shove modems up my ass with a dot-com chaser. It may have been an Eden once, but someone ate the apple. And now, when you fall in San Francisco, it's all over. There's a gap on the corner of Haight-Ashbury and a hippie chick junkie trying to sell me a dime bag at the bus stop. And this is what America is. Silicon Valley and rolling blackouts. One vortex with more money than the entire Southwest. There are billboards for Indian reservations littering the landscape with fields of burned-out Chevys while in Frisco they pay $1,300 a month for a one-bedroom garden apartment and consider themselves lucky. They get the Redwoods and we get Ford Motor Credit. I want the internet to crash so I can personally smash every Palm Pilot, break the chains that bind yuppies and money, and educate our children for real. Fuck school vouchers. Take them to Moriarty, Arizona. Show them real poverty. Show them Amarillo, Texas. Show them Golden Gate Park, where 19-year-old children sleep beneath bridges huddled together with refugees from 1969. And it ain't long, beautiful hair anymore, baby. Ask them where their next meal is coming from. This is the true America. I found more integrity in Vegas than I did in Berkeley. At least they're honest about their hypocrisy. 
So I'm counting 23s on 80 to 94, and I'm following 42 all the way home through mountains and farmlands, and I'm happy to be back in the Midwest because I went to San Francisco, and no one wore flowers in their hair. Sandwich. The very same. Two blondes and a redhead in the middle. The marmalade sandwich. Becky sort fucking out. Wonder what they're doing now. What are you asking? What do you mean? I've been mean, sitting at that table over there are two blondes and a redhead in the middle. Shut the fuck up. It's the marmalade sandwich all grown up.